Good morning. This is Greg Roman reporting live from Tel Aviv, Israel, here where it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 10 a.m. in the city of Philadelphia, reporting live for WWDB, 860 a.m. Philadelphia Talk Radio, here with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour, where we will be discussing the following three subjects. First, I have had an explosive week not to be meant in the violent sense, but in terms of just the pure amount of news that is coming out of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem since Sunday. First of all, focusing as it relates on the issues that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, especially coming from the upcoming Israeli elections, which are meant to take place on April 9th, a little more than one month from right now. We will see the current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, going head-to-head with the leader of a combined list of three separate political parties which have joined together in the effort to try to dethrone the Prime Minister after he has served for 10 years in consecutive office, not counting his time where he was serving as the Prime Minister in his first secession, in his first term, which was in the mid-1990s. The second thing that we have going on right now is there is an increased alert in terms of what the response in Israel is to the pending Trump peace plan. After April 9th, the White House has announced through its surrogates, Jason Greenblatt, Special Envoy for Middle East Peace, Jared Kushner, Special Envoy and Special Assistant to the President, and the local representative of the White House's plan, David Friedman, the American ambassador to Israel. And you can actually see the American embassy at least it's old building in Tel Aviv right now. I don't have the pleasure of being next to the one in Jerusalem. But you can understand that these three individuals and the rest of their fine team of diplomats and negotiators have been waiting more than two years to introduce what the president has called the deal of the century. However, what the White House probably didn't plan is, is that this deal would have to be able to muster or at least pass muster as a key issue of the coming Israeli Knesset elections. And we're starting to see how that unfolds. And the third thing that I was hoping to bring to this broadcast today, besides being joined by our two guests that we'll get to in a little bit, is what is the feeling of the everyday Israeli? And what are the kinds of demographics that are looked at as it relates to the Israeli voting population? Yes, like the United States. They have left, they have right, they have the center. They have some individuals who are more secular. They have some individuals who are more religious. But at the same time, there are issues in this country that are often spoken about as the norm in a Middle East democracy that is nothing that could be categorized as a norm as it relates to every other Western liberal democracy. So here in Israel, we have a situation where the threats that have been facing this region for the past century affect the way in which the country governs itself. But at the same time, we have a situation where the people make decisions based on values, which are not just those that are considered normative towards democracies, but also as it relates to the day-to-day security threats that they have to go through. An interesting statistic that I came across when I was speaking to a member of the foreign ministry on Monday when I visited there this week was that something like 40% of Israelis identified as left back in the 1990s, another 30% identified as conservative, and about 30% identified as being in the middle. 
the same survey that identified that number in 1994 taken in 2018 now identifies 63% of Israelis as identifying as politically conservative. The center is about 20%, and only about 17% is left as being considered on the left. So this shows you what 25 years of terrorism, of warfare, but also of being able to enjoy a free market economy, getting out of the socialism-strung, plagued economy that Israel had faced in the 1980s during their own savings and loans crisis. There was, there was a banking crisis in Israel in 1986, just like there was a banking crisis in the U.S. around the same time. And by being able to track their economic progress, they're now considered by U.S. News & World Report at least the eighth most powerful country in the world. And looking at their own political situations, we find that they are starting to have a, a political uh, beliefs system which is appropriate for the region they live in, rather than having a political belief system when the country began back in the 1940s and 1950s that was actually based on a modern uh, yet antiquated idea of how socialism and Judaism could bound together in terms of Zionism, which was Jewish nationalism or the idea that Jews have the right to move back to the country or to the land that they consider to be their ancestral homeland after having been expelled some 2,000 years ago. Yet, during that entire time, they did have a consistent presence in the land of Israel. So let me tell you what I'm looking at right now. I have these skyscrapers that are around me that are appropriate in a city like Philadelphia, yet only maybe 10 blocks from me looking west. I see the sun setting on the Mediterranean Sea sparkling as if there was some prescient uh, lake that might be more appropriate on the Delaware River or looking out over a, uh, a, a, a paradise that's here. But when I think of what's behind me in the exact opposite direction, to the east of me, I'm seeing this beautiful sunset on the Mediterranean Sea. Exactly opposite to me is the West Bank. It's Judea and Samaria. It's the area where a Palestinian population lives that once upon a time, the majority wanted to be able to live in peace with their Jewish neighbors. They enjoyed economic benefits from having being able to have um, dealt with Israel. They had uh, a relative peace from 1967 until about the mid-1980s that was maybe based on this idea of economic peace theory, something that is very strong in the leaks that are coming out about the peace process as it relates to Kushner, Greenblatt, and Friedman. But the false promise of peace and of Palestinian autonomy that may have been sold to the Palestinian population in 1993 and 1994, some 25 years ago when President Bill Clinton presided over the Oslo peace process between former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and former Palestinian Liberation Organization Secretary General Yasser Arafat, Rabin then eventually, a few years later, would be assassinated by a member of his own nation because of his willingness to uh, get into this process. Now, that, that was a horrible tragedy that happened to the prime minister. He took a great risk trying to reach out across the aisle to his Palestinian counterpart that he had considered him to be an enemy for decades. Arafat survived until 2004. 
And then Rabin ended up being replaced by a succession of some left, some right governments, some who believed in unilateralism, some who believed in the peace process. But for the past 10 years, the position of the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been one of strategic ambiguity and of strategic patience, waiting until the right time comes to be able to figure out what to do with the Palestinian issue that faces Israelis on a day-to-day basis. The position of the Palestinians, unfortunately, has been one of going down a downward, downward spiral of stress that finds themselves day after day more and more mired in not the ambiguity of peace, but the ambiguity of where they're going to get their next meal. You have a Palestinian Authority president now, a guy named Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the Palestinian Authority and the head of Hamas, which is the Palestinian Authority's Islamist ideological rival that controls the Gaza Strip. The the Palestinian entity is divided into two very specific and different geographic locations that also rejects the need and the right and the comfort that would come to the Palestinians and the solace that would provide to their economic way of life on a day-to-day basis by saying to, first, the United States, we don't want to have anything to do with you. You want us to reform in the way in which we govern ourselves? You know what? We'd rather not take your money than actually reform and try to make the lives of Palestinian residents of the West Bank and Gaza better. They reject any Western assistance. Then, when their Arab neighbors and their Arab brethren ask them for reform, they say, no, we want to have nothing to do with you either because we would rather do this on our own. And then it even gets worse where Palestinians who seek to enter into joint economic partnerships with Israeli and Jewish-owned companies in Israel proper or in the West Bank and Gaza, these Palestinian entrepreneurs, if they're in, in Gaza, they might be getting the death penalty or a long prison sentence. If they're in the West Bank, at the very least, they're being ostracized by the Palestinian Authority. At the very worst, let's say it involves a land deal, they could also get the death penalty just for talking commercial relationships with their Israeli neighbors. That's what we have. In the West, a beautiful Mediterranean sunset. In the East, the war of tomorrow. We'll be back with our next guest, Iron Bolshan, after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other 
for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Greg Roman here on Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. To tee up my next guest, I'd like to be able to discuss some of the other issues which have been the focus of the Israeli election and the media describing for probably the first time in Israel's most nascent recent history in this 21st Knesset election, the influence of foreign powers and especially those are non-state actors that are influencing Israel's elections by getting into the realm of foreign interference in its democratic operations. It could be hacking. It could be fake news being brought and bought on Israeli social media channels. It could be individuals impersonating reporters trying to spread dirt about Israeli politicians, whether it be in the Likud, the labor or other political parties' primaries, or even as it's affecting the general election. And you even have the Central Election Committee appointing a cyber security and cyber espionage czar looking out for political party-sponsored propaganda that goes against the spirit and the letter of Israel's election law. To speak about these issues, I'd like to call upon Aaron Bolshan. He is currently a researcher at a... Uh, undisclosed location in an Ivy League university where he takes on the subject of fake news from a research perspective. But more importantly, Mr. Balshan has focused the last 10 years of his career writing, reading, being quoted, published, and credited in numerous publications in his role, both as a staff sergeant in the Israeli Defense Forces and a former associate director of intelligence in an Israeli-based private security firm. While Mr. Balshan's work is very much uh, but beyond the depths of what we can speak about sometimes, you can see the final results in The Diplomat, The Hill, The Jerusalem Post, Newsweek, and a plethora of other publications. Mr. Bolshan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg. How's it going? Uh, it's great. So I understand that beyond the Israeli election interference that's been reported on here from Tel Aviv, there is a brand new project that you are leading up called the Partisan Digest, which which maybe we could replicate here in Israel that you've been uh, putting together with a business partner for the past uh, two or three months. Why don't you tell us more about that, how that tries to segment the news, and then how that might be applicable for our listeners in Philadelphia and those who are listening here in the studio in the Middle East? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, the Partisan Digest is this new project that we're trying to start. And what we are doing is we're trying to round up all the loudest chatter from the hyperpartisan left and the hyperpartisan right and package it in an easily digestible way that the average person that wouldn't necessarily transverse in these spaces would be able to understand. So, so we're not reporting on the news per se, but we're more reporting on how people are reporting on the news. And this could definitely apply to Israel, uh, the project that we're doing now, but just in the context of America, when we're looking at it, you sort of see that, that this project wouldn't jive too well with people that are very firmly into the idea of mainstream media and a certain set of facts. And we're not saying that, that mainstream media is illegitimate in any sort of way. We totally accept their facts and their reality. 
But this project, what it's trying to do in its unique way is recognize that there are a very wide set of facts and a very wide set of realities and that you could look at the same set of facts and have an entirely different view on them. And people are tending to ignore uh, the, the, the new narratives that are being shaped by these very diametrically opposed realities. And uh, it's important to spotlight these sort of things and understand where people are coming from because uh, they're not going away. If anything, they're getting stronger. And sort of the way that you were talking about it with these, these bot networks and, and, and inorganic behavior on the internet by state-sponsored actors or other sort of nefarious actors, uh, it, it may seem benign. It may seem just like a couple people posting things. But the way that amplification of engagement works, uh, very often these, these hyper-partisan uh, narratives, which are based on facts but totally contaminated in their context, they're getting millions upon millions of engagements on the internet and having a very serious impact on, on shaping the narrative of discourse. So the audience we're talking about of who is most likely to want to read this, I understand the need for a specialist to want to understand why there's such a, a, a broad spectrum of different opinions and the attempts sometimes to influence those opinions, whether they be in a malign nature or maybe more in a positive nature, but why should someone who is your, let's say, average 20 or 30-something, they're listening to podcasts, they're getting, I don't know, I think it's 80% of the, this demographic gets their news from Facebook beyond uh, uh, being able to be exposed to television or newspaper or, or even regular news and, and digital media outlets. Why should the everyday reader care about your site and why should they read it? I think there's a good quote by Debbie Lynn who once said, you need to see your enemies as a lesson and not as an opposition. And I think that this digest, what it's meant to do is that you have everyone lies somewhere on a spectrum in terms of what their biases are when they look at news media. Between the hyperpartisan right, the partisan right, center right, center left, hyperpartisan left, we don't believe in a center because we believe that there is no longer one truth. And in order to understand where someone is coming from, for example, the average listener or reader of the Middle East Forum, which comes with a, a narrative and a set of facts that, in my opinion, are very correct in the way that, that you think. But in order to understand the narrative of the other side, you must like see a roundup of the conversation that's being held among the people that believe in the things that, they're, that, that these groups are espousing. Uh, whether it come from inorganic amplification in its inception or whether it's part of some sort of organic chatter uh, and, and, and growth in the ideological uh, uh, opinions of these groups and these peoples. So I would say that for the average reader, the real or the average listener, or the average, you know, we, we're, we're developing a podcast, we have a newsletter, that we have uh, many outputs and mediums for, for which people can sort of get this information now. Uh, the, the, the real benefit is to get see what other people see as truth, why they see it as truth, and in doing so, you're going to be able to arm yourself and see the best possible way to uh, deal with those arguments. You know, I'm thinking of Napoleon when he says, you must not fight too often with one enemy or you will teach him all your art of war. Meaning that, you know, if we are not, having points of connection, not in terms of some visceral uh, uh, conflict with the enemy that we consider to be someone who not possesses this, this White House lingua franca was using alternative facts, which is uh, something I think we'll get to in terms of the validity of information. But one thing that I understand from what you're saying is that it's not important just to be able to generate 
um, the facts of whatever stories you're reporting on, but you have to be able to cover perspective. And storytelling is something that's incredibly important in the delivering of narratives that associate itself with different parts of the news. So when we look at your newsletter, and uh, or, or rather the digest, I apologize, I see that you're taking the left, the right, the center-left, the center-right perspective, and you're sharing most of the information so that your readers have the ability to jump to conclusions themselves without having a one-tunnel narrative or a one-way tunnel narrative like a CNN always railing against one position or a Fox News always going in a different position. And would you even encourage your readers to potentially take time to not just get this uh, hyper-partisan narrative, but maybe try to find uh, less active news sites, but maybe more passive news sites like, hey, go read the CIA World Factbook. That might help you get some context. Why don't you go listen or walk on the street in the story of what's taking place if you're watching the local news, spend some time also on Main Street to see if there's something else you can hear by getting a primary source rather than relying on a biased reporter. What are some tips that you can give to people to help them get better sources of news and to better understand it and some better context without being warped by that hyper by that oft-used hyper-partisan narrative that has become all too familiar in the reporting of the American news cycle? That's a great question. I mean, I would definitely say that you, you hit the nail on the head. You always want to go to the primary source of any sort of information. I mean, when you scan a, a news article or a, a, any sort of opinion piece, uh, your brain should, uh, as, a, as a global society, I feel now that our brain should really start to make a habit of sifting through all of the, the hyperbolic language in it, all of the framing, and just go, what is the basis for which this person is writing all of this information? And then click on that link, try to get that context first. And then if you still feel like you want to hear the narrative or the opinion of the original person writing, you go back to it. But I can tell you that in my time in, in doing open source intelligence analysis, and I did it for almost a decade in, in my year of doing uh, research at Harvard University, that I could tell you there is no smoking gun fake news. Uh, I mean, there certainly is, but th that smoking gun fake news maybe accounts for just 10 or 20 percent of what we would categorize as fake news. So much of it, the, the vast majority of it, is what one would call context contamination, which is when uh, all things that are presented to you are facts, but maybe the omission of certain other facts or the inclusion of facts without uh, uh, some sort of relative contrast, that creates a, uh, a context that uh, is intellectually untrue based on the realities of the world. And it would be impossible for a reader who would just read this and take it as, as Bible to be able to, to, to figure out what is truth and, and what is not. And, so let's, uh, let's, so let's, that's let's exactly where that. primary what, what, sources let's focus come what you in. Just and, said and, for a second. and I definitely Wait. think whenever possible, you need to go to those. But I would also say... Let's, Aaron, that, Aaron, Aaron, just give me, give me one second here. I want to focus on something you said, which is sure. the contamination of context. And I, I think that there's an opposite problem here which is the willingness for publications or, or, or platforms that control publications, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, that if the context of someone's narrative is anathematic to the majority of the followers or of a empowered minority or even a plurality of readers who find that platform 
and its users publishing to be offensive or what someone could categorize as offensive. There is a tendency to deplatform an opinion, thereby creating a sort of purity of context in the eyes of what the majority of the other platform users consider to be correct. So isn't it sometimes this, this contamination that you're speaking about also egged on or enabled by platforms that only allow voices that comport with the way they see the world rather than from alternative perspectives, thereby leading to even more contamination, all within this vein of trying to create a more pure version of the news that's appropriate for someone's lens, but not for someone else's. I think, w I think with the issue of deplatforming, it's, it's a tricky issue. I would say that uh, on the whole, you are correct. It is never good to silence an opinion uh, because, at least from my experience and my research, those, opi those opinions tend not to go away in any case. Uh, they just sort of manifest in spaces where people tend not to look, which is exactly the hyperpartisan spaces that I am now transversing through uh, when doing the digest. And like, for example, if you're seeing a person like Mike Adams, the health ranger, or Alex Jones, who are who on their face, you see these things and you think, okay, this is this is what I find. You know, the ma the vast majority of people would find this reprehensible. That this talk of Sandy Hook and stuff, I'm comfortable with banning this. Well, now you have two problems. You're, you're giving a lot of authority, first of all, to the, the platforms that don't have a lot of accountability in terms of what they're banning and what they're not banning, which more speaks to, to what you're talking about. But also from a tactical level, it's totally unproven whether or not this is actually an effective way of shaping any sort of speech. And I would argue that it is actually ineffective. If you look at the example of um, Mike Adams, who was the health ranger, he, he ran a, a, a news website called Natural News. He still does as much as I don't want to plug it, and I suggest your readers not to go to it. So it is, Do we have it a is, Middle uh, East example? Sorry? Do we have a Middle East-related example that might be more familiar for the audience? A Middle East example? What, what, do you have any examples of um, international publications for, for, for the Middle East that have been deplatformed? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe we play uh, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of devil's advocate here. And mm -hmm. we talk about a Middle East-oriented fake news site like Lapam, if you remember that, which was it was an Israeli um, uh, satirical website that was often saying what some people consider to be offensive comments towards uh, Arabs and 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 you know in the more nefarious version Islamist, and they were removed from their Twitter account because they were using satire to expose terrorism. Mm. Yeah, so I would say in that, in, like, so sort of the same thing as what I was getting at, but definitely, like in that example, these people uh, get deplatformed from the social media that they've been operating on, whether if Lapam was on Facebook or whoever it was, but their followers aren't going anywhere, and they're not going anywhere, and they will find a new medium to communicate things to the to, to their people, but they'll be doing so without any sort of regulation or any sort of oversight from like what the mainstream social discourse is saying. So, and, and when that happens, so it becomes a sort of cesspool where very nefarious narratives will start to be shaped. And, and then those sort of narratives can get re-injected back into the mainstream. And when you, when, and, and so I, 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 I'm not sure if there's an equivalent of the sort of anonymous forums that you find in America, the 4chan's and the, uh, the vote 
Discord, Gab, all of these these places that are there's totally there's plenty of anonymous Middle Eastern message boards which have been used for sharing more of the uh, acceptable in the West values uh, like sexuality and you know political opinions that are used because of the unacceptability of their opinions in the Middle East by anonymous users. But yeah, I think they get the same idea. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, and where we're coming from, and I think where the correct healthy way in this current climate to be viewing things is that as, as if you find those despicable or if you don't, as despicable as those narratives are, they should probably be allowed to exist in the marketplace of ideas and be stricken down for their merits or accepted as they be accepted. But like, I, uh, I certainly feel at least the position now that, uh, that I'm in, not as a researcher, but as a, as a sort of curator of news content from across the political spectrum, that, that this is the way forward when you have these people that are seeing the same set of facts, but from that are able to, you know, not necessarily in a satirical kind of way like La Pomme, but maybe in a you know, a, a, a very partisan right way in Israel, a very sort of nationalistic way or a, a very sort of anti-Zionist way on the left, that, that in either case, these people are going to take the same set of facts that we're all operating with, but they're either going to have a, a, an absence of certain context or an addition of certain context that totally warps uh, their perception of the reality, at least in the relative sense of the way that, that the mainstream perceives that reality. So, Aaron, we've got about two minutes left. Let's say you're the prime minister of Israel or the opposition leader or even the head of the Central Elections Committee. How do you ensure that the voters get their share of real news, but also that their opinions aren't being suppressed? What are two or three recommendations you'd make to social media companies, just mainstream news outlets, so that individuals can get a better sense of what's going on in their daily politics? Well, I'd say in terms of in terms of legislation, there needs to be more accountability for the social media platforms, and, and, and whether or not they are shadow banning, whether or not they are uh, deplatforming, to what scope they're doing that, we need to be more aware of that, and we need to be more aware of the metrics that in which they use. It, 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 there is definitely a truth, uh, or at least a perceptive truth, that segments of the society are getting deplatformed and others aren't. And when that happens, it totally erodes confidence in the system. So are, are you calling for regulation or at least a certain level of transparency from these private companies? Yeah, there definitely needs to be okay. a, a, a regulation that demands for more transparency, in my opinion, in, in, in the way that they are interacting with uh, their users in this context. So, then, so and, let's, and let's also, treat them as public utilities. They're just like the phone system. They should not be allowed to take away fundamental rights since the atmosphere and the platform for global democratic discussion, or at least in this case, national democratic discussion, is being regulated by a private individual or a private corporation rather than the government. So perhaps transparency in their decision-making, and they eventually will answer to the government rather than just to their stockholders. Well, I just I, I, I wouldn't want to say whether or not it should be absorbed by the government or be some sort of utility, but what we definitely need is not, not absorbed, not absorbed, but regulated. Yeah, regulated. There, need, there needs to be some sort of consistency, and we need to know what that consistency is. Otherwise, we're not going to have trust in our system, and we're not going to know what is authentic behavior, what is inauthentic behavior. I mean, like forgetting about fake news first, I mean, forgetting about, <clears throat> excuse me, partisanship for a second. 
um, talk, talking about bot networks and, uh, you know, non-state and state actors that are trying to influence the election. If we are not aware of the scope of that problem, because a lot of these uh, uh, platforms are not like allowing researchers like me, uh, you know, other people in, that are holding levers of, of power and influence on these sort of issues uh, are not allowing transparency into these things for us to better understand the scope of it. So uh, in a lot of ways, when people like me are searching for inorganic behavior, we're searching for bot networks and bot farms that are trying to influence uh, certain elections or certain uh, economic uh, uh, situations. We're doing so in the dark with a flashlight. When at the end of the day, a lot of these platforms can just turn on a light switch and, and help us out. So, Aaron, any final thoughts? And, and two things. One, how can we subscribe to the Partisan Digest? And two, what can we expect in the next month or two coming from your project? So you can find us at thepartisandigest.com or partisandigest.com. We're on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Partisan Digest. We, uh, we have a, a, a daily newsletter that we're putting out that does a roundup of the major uh, issues of the news cycle of that day. We also like to have fun. We're developing right now what we're calling a meme showdown, which is when we take two memes on the same issue from the hyperpartisan left and hyperpartisan right and sort of contrast how they interact with each other. And we're going to be able to vote on those and decide the winners. And, you know, we'll have a good time with it. At the end of the day, as, as bad as politics gets and as bad as this hyperpartisan world is, you still got to be able to laugh at it. There's still a lot of funny memes going around on the Internet. And, that, and that, that's really the core of it. But in the coming months, we are going to keep expanding. Uh, we're going to be covering more issues. We are constantly crawling the Internet. We, you know, we go through hundreds of thousands of pieces of content every single day to find um, the, the things that are most relevant and the things that people would find most interesting. And we're going to continue increasing that scope. So, yeah, check us out. Go to PartisanDigest.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And, uh, yeah, this project is, is going to keep growing. It's going to keep being exciting. Aaron Digest, uh, Aaron Balshan, thank you for joining us. And good luck with your new project. After these messages, Kyle Scheidler. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. We are broadcasting live from Tel Aviv. And just an update on our beautiful sundown. We now have this crisp crimson sky, which is now floating over the Mediterranean Sea as it drops onto the other side of the world, rising on you, Philadelphia. And unfortunately, the enemies to the east are still there. And to speak a little bit more about the ideological opponents of not just the Israelis in this election, but also something that we've been coming to update on a weekly basis, the status of Islamist-derived anti-Semitism in the U.S. Congress, and now seeing the useful idiots and fellow travelers of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and their different surrogates, which have been saturating the American media space with hate, trying to justify their intolerable behavior and words. We're joined by Kyle Scheidler, the director of the Counter-Islamist Grid. Uh, hey, Greg. Hey, Kyle. I, uh, I wish I could share some of this sun and warm weather with me from Israel over with you in Virginia. Oh, we could use it. It's a bit chilly here. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, but I'll be joining you tomorrow after I uh, get my way back. So why don't you give us the latest on the Omar uh, struggle or, or this upcoming vote on this anti-Semitism bill in Congress, and what should our listeners know about the top two or three things that have developed in this case over the last week since we last broadcasted? Well, you know, I think what we're looking at is um, sort of the the growth of anti-Semitism in, the, in this U.S. Congress, in this, in this segment of the Democratic Party. You know, we have this rise of Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and I think it's worth including in that also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who recently took to social media to defend Omar uh, very aggressively. Yeah, it, so it's as if the intersectionality has now you know, found itself in the U.S. Congress. Uh, yes, quite deliberately. You know, uh, MEF and, and SIG was covering this during the election process. We were saying, look, you have this alignment between the very hard left and these Islamists, uh, in part because of their position on Israel. And so it's not, it's not a surprise to see, see them forming a block in, in the Congress. Right. So you have one ideological component and grouping that has no problem throwing shade on liberal Jewish Democrats that are trying to hold people of their own party accountable. I mean, Elliot Engel, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer now bringing a resolution to the full House floor. And what do we hear? We have the number one Omar fan in New York City, and I don't mean AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but Linda Sarsour saying that the reason why these mainstream Democratic figures are condemning anti-Semitism isn't because Omar is an anti-Semite, but it's because they're trying to take the direction of white men. I mean, come on, how absurd could we be when Nancy Pelosi, one of the most liberal, most outspoken Democratic members of Congress, that's how she earned her position as Speaker of the House, is now being called as a defender of white, uh, Caucasian, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, men. And, and, and it's because there is no other defense that the Arab-American, Islamist-driven, minority-controlled community 
is using to speak out as the majoritarian spokespeople of the Democratic Party. When was the last time Sarsour represented mainstream liberal Democratic interests? And I think what we're seeing right now is one of two things. It's either the Democratic Party is about to tear itself up over Jew hatred, which is very real in that party, or the insane have taken over the asylum, and more and more we see members of the Democratic Party that are not Islamists, that are not Palestinian rejectionists, like you said, AOC, stepping up to institutionalize anti-Semitism. What, what, what's your take? Well, I think we saw elements of this way back when you look at the Democratic Convention where they had, they had to pass uh, support for Jerusalem they, three times before they could sneak it through, right? They have a very radicalized base that people like Sarsour... You're, you're talking about the adoption Cassio of Cortez. the Democratic National Committee's platform at the convention in Philadelphia in 2016, right? That's exactly right. Okay, okay. You know, so th this has been a long time coming. So this is a rearguard action by Pelosi and Hoyer and, and the other Democratic leadership to try and square this circle. Because on the one hand, they don't want to criticize their left hard. I mean, they're not naming any names in this resolution. It's not a, it's not a condemnation of Omar specifically. Uh, but on the other hand, they have to do something because their mainstream donors, including a lot of Jewish Democrats, are really, really concerned, and they should be. Now, this is this is really obtuse, but let's compare this to the uh, the Steve King episode that took place about, I guess it's five weeks ago now. At the beginning of this Congress, there was an interview and, a, and a, a statement that was put out by Congressman Steve King from Iowa's 1st District, where he was defending white supremacy. The reaction by the Republican Party within 24 hours of those statements was immediate, swift, and severe. He's kicked off of all of his committees. He has no rights as a member of Congress beyond what the Constitution gives to him, and they immediately seek to censure him in the well of the U.S. House between Democrats and Republicans. The entire Republican Party voted against it, except for Steve King. That was based on, I think it was one or two statements. Now, you have 60 days of Congresswoman Alhana Omar in the U.S. Congress, and it's as if though a day does not go by when we are reminded of her anti-Semitic inclinations, her reminding of canards, her trying to find other individuals who were in the House to remind us of her hate and, and, and duality of loyalty and different opinions— and it is, I guess it's easy for me to say this sitting here from Tel Aviv, but how is it that the Democratic Party, which uses talking points that call the Republican Party the party of hate and intolerance, are accepting modern-day anti-Semitism when they control the majority of the U.S. Congress? Is that hypocrisy or is that political expediency? And why do you think they're doing that? Well, I mean, you're talking about a left wing of the Democratic Party whose remarks sound closer to what David Duke says when it comes to supporting BDS or the views about how the Jewish lobby, quote-unquote, affects Congress, right? So they're actually far more closer in their opinions to, quote-unquote, white supremacy than anything they've accused the Republicans of doing. So it's, it is hypocrisy. So there, there's certainly, I, I don't want to go so far and say that it's close to, uh, to white supremacy, but we definitely have Islamist supremacist supporters and their fellow travelers 
using the lingua franca of hate that the Republican Party and even some more conservative Democrats have been accused of using over the past decade or so since the hyper uh, 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 polarization of American politics, I think, began probably at the end of the Clinton years, beginning of the Bush years. And now we see the product of that third generation of the left. It's not as violent as the anarchists in the early 1900s. It's not as massive as the second left, the 68 generation, but it is certainly a group, a generation of millennials, even generation Xers, whatever we want to call it, baby boomers, that is using language that, if it was used 30 years ago, would have been subject to an FBI investigation. I mean, you have American members of Congress openly defending the regime of Nicolas Maduro, who's committing a humanitarian catastrophe and destroying democracy in the Western Hemisphere, and you have members of Congress who consider themselves to be human rights advocates shilling for him. And beyond that, you have them openly defending terrorists in the Middle East. You have them criticizing our democratic allies. And this is all in the name of political correctness. I think it's because something went wrong with this transition between Trump going to a certain direction the Republicans didn't realize, and this is the Democrats, the Democrats acting out, not realizing what it's going to exactly take for them to get their keel together and to find a viable candidate to go against him in 2020. What's your take? Well, you know, I think support for Venezuela is not an accident when it comes from the Islamist supporters, right? Venezuela is very much a nexus between the very hard left and your, your Islamists throughout the Middle East. You see Hezbollah there, you see, you know, other Islamist groups operating in Venezuela as well. So that is not a coincidence. I think we should remember that when we, when we look at uh, the information coming out of Venezuela. Now you have a network of I think seven to eight different reporters, uh, advocates, attaches, representatives across the United States. We've been talking a lot about what's going on in Washington and to a certain lesser extent what's happening in the districts of these members of Congress and a little bit overseas. What are you hearing on the ground and what are the stories that our listeners need to know in the context of this increased polarization and acceptance, at least the discourse, of anti-Semitism and other Islamist-linked ideological underpinnings that you're hearing from the field? What are the top three or four things we have to know about? Well, I think I would look at number one, the recent election of Ibrahim Samira. This is something I've been covering for some time. Ibrahim now, Samira, remind us, who, remind is, us who Samira is. Sure. So Samira is a longtime BDS act, activist. Uh, he was the Students for Justice in Palestine in college. He recently spoke at the American Muslims for Palestine a convention in Chicago, which uh, the Israeli government has said the AMP is close to Hamas. And his father, Sabri Samira, is a Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood spokesman and was formerly chairman of the Islamic Association of Palestine, an organization which the government of the United States says was created to support Hamas. So this is the gentleman who recently won election to the state house in Virginia. And there was very, very little coverage of his connections or his relationships. There was a little bit of coverage about his anti-Semitism, 
uh, some statements he had made on Facebook, but it was really covered up the actual relationships that were at play. And I think that's an excellent model of what happens at the local level being reflected also at the congressional level. We see that with uh, Elon Omar, for example, where everybody's talking about what she said on Twitter and not her traveling to the Islamic Relief Fundraiser, Islamic Relief being an organization also which has been linked to terror finance. So what we have is instances, in this case, the beginning of the political career of Samira, he might be a future contender for U.S. House or even for the Senate, being uh, a lesson that we learn because of the lack of attention paid to him, then by taking Omar, someone who served in the local state House and state Senate, I believed, for better part of a decade. Get, correct me if I'm wrong on the timing, but she did serve for the better part of a decade in Minnesota local politics before she stepped up to replace fellow Islamist Keith Ellison on the national stage. So the lesson here that we're getting is you better focus on that age-old lesson, all politics is local, especially when it comes to Islamist politicians trying to gain influence at the beginning of their career. What other uh, stories do we have to know about? So a good thing we're also tracking is the travels of Mark Lamont Hill. Your listeners may be familiar with Mr. Hill because of his UN speech where he lost his position as a CNN contributor because of uh, his anti-Semitic statements made there. Uh, he and and we, all, we, also, we also have the context where, where he is a professor here in Philadelphia at Temple University. So just to remind our guys. That's right. And he has become a poster boy for some of these Islamist groups. We're seeing him out at the Chicago AMP fundraiser, uh, I believe, in March. And also, I mean, he's going to be at CARE Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. So... He's, uh, he's doing the Islamist fundraising circuit. So when we have individuals like this who make these statements, they get attention, they get criticized, but underneath it all, they're becoming rock stars for these Islamist groups. So you're, you're covering these stories. How are you fighting back? So we want to bring attention to this behavior. Uh, by educating local activists, letting them understand, A, how the process works, how to identify these guys, how to track them, how to, how to keep information about them, and how to give that information to journalists so that they can write stories and inform the public about these guys, their behavior, and uh, their involvement in the political process and how that affects uh, you know, the average American. So too often we think about this from the congressional standpoint. You know, everybody's looking at Alan Omar. They're not looking at who's running for local school board, who's on the right. human so rights commission. It all it all starts on the local level, and if we don't have an effective net to uh, track, to research, to validate, and by the way, we've been speaking a whole lot about the negative impact of Islamist politicians. There's a lot of positive pro-American, even religiously observant Muslim Americans who are contributing to American society. It's, it's not like we should just focus on the bad. There's also a lot of good stories that are coming out there, but it's just very much, in our case, easier to focus on those who are being maligned. But perhaps you can share with us, when we finish this segment, a positive story about American Muslim involvement 
in our democratic institutions. Perhaps an activist, perhaps someone who um, is uh, uh, not in office, but something to leave us with a sense of hope. Uh, <laughs> people who usually come to me for hope, Craig. Uh, they usually come well, for bad news, but I will say I would I would I, I would I would say this there there is a coalition I'm reminded of a coalition of Americans and of um, even you know Western Muslims that are coming out and they're speaking out on behalf and defending their Jewish colleagues. Kanta Ahmed had a fascinating debate last night with um, Omar Hamad, who is a, uh, a, a vice president of research for the Arab American Institute, who was seeking to defend Elhan Omar. And when we see our Muslim allies stepping up and really, um, by we, I mean, I as a Jewish American, you know, take it to heart that when I see American Muslims getting on stage to, to condemn or the stage of public opinion to condemn um, Ilhan Omar, I know that there's still hope for interfaith engagement. And I realize that she represents a very, very small minority of Islamists who may be speaking way beyond their weight, but there are not any monolithic sources of opinion as it relates to these individuals who claim to represent American Muslims, but just find their way into a sense of a, of, of a powerful situation because they were supported by other individuals that may not be Muslim, but see the value of putting an Islamist in power because it comports with their own political means. And I'm speaking more here on the uh, Ocasio-Cortez edge of the party. But um, something I, I like that. I think that's right, Greg. We saw a lot of really good movement on social media, for example, where a lot of these Islamist groups were pushing this stand with Omar uh, meme. And a lot of, of really great Western Muslim thinkers, you know, I'm thinking about guys like Zudi Jasser, uh, some of the other people I follow on Twitter, came, came out and said, hey, 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 wait a minute. That's what she says is not what we're about. This is not what we support. And if you're trying to make this the face of American Muslims in politics, we don't want any part of that. So in a way, although it's negative to focus on some of this bad behavior, it's also clarifying. And we, we are seeing some positive uh, clarity about who in, this, you know, in the, the marketplace of ideas is saying, wait a minute, these Islamists don't stand for us. Yeah, I, I'd say every instance of hate speech that Omar uses presents an opportunity for 100 more condemnations of her vile rhetoric. Uh, Kyle Scheidler. Thank you for joining us this morning. And after this brief message, we'll finish with our final thought. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter, at M-E Forum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, 
our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. For our last two minutes of conversation, I'd like to be able to look back on a subject that was brought up about two months ago here on this program, right at the turn of the year. And that was, what was the expectation of the policy agenda for our newly elected officials in terms of how they focus on the Middle East? We made some recommendations. Ask for more transparency in our relations with Middle Eastern states. Try to find ways to lower the violence being faced against our soldiers in the region, not to necessarily withdraw American forces, but to lower the possibilities and the likelihood that they may be in harm's way. And lastly, try to find ways to be able to create better connections between our Arab allies of the United States and our non-Arab allies, not just Israel, but also Eastern European countries, Eastern Mediterranean powers, and finding ways to create blocks of mutual interest rather than of mutual ethnicity or mutual religion. The same issues that focus on America's need to get stronger alliances with their Middle Eastern partners and to encourage them to work together also presents itself as it relates to Israel and its elections. There's a choice now between Israelis who are looking at who they will vote for office. Over 40 different parties with 40 different platforms present themselves to the Israeli voting public. And Israelis must decide, is this a referendum on the future of Prime Minister Netanyahu? Or will they put their security needs, their economic needs, the needs for interfaith cooperation, to be able to mend fences with their Arab neighbors as a way in which they are um, finding ways to have not the intersectionality of mutual interest, but the intersectionality of how to live for not just this generation, but many generations for peace to come. Thank you very much to Delaney Janchik for arranging our interviews today, for Aaron Bolshin and Kyle Scheidler, and we'll be joined next week in studio in Philadelphia, reporting live from Philadelphia. Have a great week.